Blog Talk Radio. Cracker. Before we get it kicked off today, every show feels like um, it feels like I'm broadcasting from the beginning of The Walking Dead because you know as I'm prepping for the show, every every story is like somewhat linked to the coronavirus, and uh, it just feels like apocalyptic. It feels like what's happening in terms of our healthcare system and what's happening in terms of our economy, it really is unlike anything we've ever seen before. So I do have a jam-packed show for you. And actually what I'm going to do is I'm going to lead with a little bit of breaking news that might actually bring a smile to your face. We got some breaking news that might actually bring a smile to your face, and I say that because it brought a, a smile to my face. So... Without further ado, let's get this quick quick little story out of the way, um, and then we'll get into the apocalypse and how it's unfolding and what you can do about it and uh, what I can teach you about it. So here we go. So right before I came on air here, a um, little bit of breaking news. We have the results from the Democrats Abroad primary. And um, nice little good news sprinkled into the day at a time when the apocalypse is currently unfolding right in front of us. Bernie Sanders got 57.9% of the vote. Joe Biden got 22.7% of the vote, um, which means that Bernie has won the Democrats abroad primary, which means nine delegates for Bernie and four for Biden. All right, nice. (laughs) It ain't over till it's over. Now, we know the overwhelmingly likely scenario, but still, 
you know, nothing like a little pick-me-up in the beginning of the day. They announced this at a weird time. They announced it at 10 a.m. today. Um, I, I've, never, uh, I've never heard of anything being announced at such an odd time, but, hey, the results are, uh, you know, right in line with something that I would like and you would like, so uh, wanted to give you a little something to bring a smile to your face as, again, we're about to get into what feels like the end of the world with almost every other story that we're going to do today. So um, does this massively change the nature of the race? No, it doesn't. Um, However, you know, I would love it if Bernie Sanders stayed in the race for a variety of reasons, including um, giving me the opportunity to vote for him again, as I did in 2016. Um, I told you guys it feels really good to vote for somebody who you know you agree with on the overwhelming majority of the issues, somebody who represents you in perhaps a way that no other politician will for the rest of our lives. I hope that's not the case, but it very well may be the case. So that feels um, really good. And then also, him staying in allows him to use his prominence and his position uh, to do good in the world. And we're actually seeing that right now. Uh, He just did a fundraiser where he raised $2 million for the coronavirus relief effort. So he's using this position, he's using his prominence, he's using the fact that he's still in the race to do good. He's also been doing regular, um, you know, speeches on the coronavirus, laying out a specific plan. Um, He has some of his surrogates as well taking part of this. Uh, Rashida Tlaib, Ilhan Omar, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. They're working together to come up with a comprehensive response to what's happening right now. And um, also to continue to pressure Biden, continue to, you know, keep him, I was going to say honest, but we all know he's not honest, (laughs) keep him more honest than he would be if Bernie was out. So I hope, and then also the most important one I forgot to tell you is, yeah, I mean, you never know, there might be some sort of a health issue that happens with Biden and Bernie should stay in the race for that reason. Just hang around. Now, again, I'm not... You know, I have, I have perfectly clear vision. I'm not, you know, I'm under no illusions about what's likely going to happen. Believe me. Um, but still, I think him hanging around is a good idea. And uh, nothing like a little bit of good news to start the day. Bernie Sanders is the winner of the Democrats abroad primary. All right, now the end of the world. The end of the world. It's the end of the world as we know it. That song has been stuck in my head quite a bit because we're in the end of the world. So let me update everybody on the health crisis currently sweeping the nation. Um, Here are some numbers for you as of last night. This is as of last night. It almost certainly has gone up since, uh, since these numbers came out. So the total cases in the world. 339,474. Again, these are official cases. That's very different from what's called true cases. Uh, True cases is significantly higher. These cases are just the ones that are tested for and verified. Deaths, there's been 14,502. Recovered, 96,661. Unresolved, 228,311. Then you go down the line there, see China 
still has had the most cases, 81,000. Um, but they're now on the back end of the outbreak. As you can see, there's only 46 new cases in China. So effectively, their complete and utter lockdown has worked. It's worked. So now, because they shut everything down completely and stayed in that position for an extended period of time, now life can slowly but surely come back to normal, whereas other nations dragging their feet and never really doing a lockdown means we're going to have a prolonged um, and perhaps a more deadly situation unfold here. And then also you have to keep in mind, you know, population density. How many people are in China versus Italy versus the U.S.? And so you could determine, if you do the math on it, you know, just how bad the outbreak was per capita. So um, China had 81,000 cases total, only 46 new cases. Italy, 59,138 cases. And um, new cases, 5,560. So even with the lockdown, you're seeing, you know, some pretty terrible numbers. But it could just be because there's a lag in the testing. Um, new deaths, 651 new deaths in Italy. By the way, the death rate in Italy, look at that, higher than anywhere else, 9.26%. That's the highest in the world by far, uh, even surpassing Iran. And Iran is not, um, you know, taking the same kind of preventative measures that many other nations are taking. So why is that? I mean, you know, I'm not an expert. If I had to guess, maybe it has something to do with the fact that the population is, is generally older. There's also a lot of smokers there. Um, it also could be that they... They actually have very good data that they've been keeping, um, as opposed to some of the other places perhaps don't have as solid data. Um, you know, or there could be something that genetically affects certain populations more than other populations. Again, I'm just guessing here. I'm not a doctor. I want everybody to know up front. I'm not an expert on this stuff. I'm just a dude talking, but I'm trying to give you the information and attempt to make sense of it. Um, but there has to be some reason why the death rate in Italy is nearly 10%, whereas, you know, the rest of the world, it, it's a lot different. I mean, so next, look at the U.S. You got 34,532 um, uh, cases, 8,500 new cases. So we're just absolutely skyrocketing now on a, an insane trajectory. Deaths, 393. New deaths, 85. And they say that um, our death rate, percentage of deaths is about 1.14%. By the way, a point that, you know, was made by a doctor, an expert on this, is that there's no, there's no like set number. That, that uh, percentage um, when it comes to death is, it's fluid and it can change. And a lot of it has to do with um, the availability of, of ICU beds and care. So if, if your health system is overburdened, your death rate is going to go up because there are people who would otherwise be saved who aren't saved because perhaps we don't have a ventilator and we don't get them help in time. So there's no, it's not like a stagnant number that you could give, which is why you see the death rate you know, kind of varies from place to place. So anyway, um, as far as the United States goes, we are in trouble because we are, we're just getting started. Andrew Cuomo said, you know, three to five days ago that the peak of the virus, at least in my state in New York, is going to be in 45 days. So now 40 to 42 days. It's still that far away, which is a scary thought because I know because I have a friend who works as a doctor in New York City um, that 
He's saying, you know, our hospital's already overburdened. We're already short on certain kinds of medicine. We're already short on ventilators. Desperately need support. They need help. And Trump enacted, um, I forget the name of the act, but it's an act that's a wartime act, which allows the president to compel private businesses to make certain things that are needed. So, you know, in theory now, he could say, okay, I need whatever, whatever car manufacturers are left in this country, I need you to suspend work on the cars and start pumping out ventilators. And they would have to do it. So I'm happy he invoked that act. But as we're going to get to later, he invoked the act and then didn't do any specific orders to make specific things, whether it's masks or ventilators or anything else. So he's just kind of sitting back as this thing is still unfolding. And that's mind boggling. So he definitely should invoke the act and get specific as to which plants make what things and, you know, get to work, man. Because what's happening is we are waiting until everything is already too bad to then act. Like we needed, we needed a total lockdown, you know, going back to March 1st. And unfortunately, everybody's dragging their feet. Like Andrew Cuomo is getting a lot of credit now for being, you know, going around and playing Mr. Bossman and, you know, acting like um, he's got everything under control. He's doing these daily press conferences where he's given the specific numbers. He's given specific directions. He's, he's acting like a leader. He looks like a leader. But everything he's doing is too late. Like, he needed to do all this stuff two weeks ago, at least. So, you know, I don't think – I think the praise is a little overboard because we're going to see how bad it's going to get, which leads to my next point, which is exactly how bad it's likely to get. Now, these are projections, by the way. This website, covidactnow.org, I highly recommend everybody go to it. You can see the list of the experts and the doctors who've endorsed this model. So that leads me to believe there's some degree of uh, consistency in this model. There's some degree of accuracy in this model. And even if it's off, perhaps it's not you know, off enough to make that much of a difference. Um, but look at, you could, you could look state by state to see just how bad it's going to get. And what I just pulled up here is my state of New York, and we're at the moment, we're the hardest hit. Uh, we're ahead of a lot of other states at the moment. Um, Washington was also very bad, but New York is just getting obliterated right now. But you can see that black line represents the number of hospital beds we have in the state. And you see, you know, the different colors, so the red, the, the orange, and the turquoise, that represents different approaches that we could have taken. Um, the, the red is no action. What would happen if we had no action? And the red spike there represents the number of hospitalizations. So we'd be talking about over 400,000 people in New York needing hospitalization, and needing hospitalization, and we only have, you know, a few thousand hospital beds. Again, that black line at the bottom represents hospital beds. So you want to talk about an overburdened healthcare system. That would be impossible to accommodate. Now, then you have the option of three months of social distancing. And, you know, okay, it's better, but it's not that much better because you're still talking about, you know, about 150,000 hospitalizations that are needed. And, again, you could see how low that black line is. So the healthcare system and the number of beds is still being massively overburdened. Then you have three months of what's called a shelter-in-place order, um, which hasn't been done 
we're kind of taking a, a middle approach now where in, in New York, all non-essential businesses are shut, all essential businesses are open, and the government is just saying, hey, you have to stay in, you know, if you can, by any stretch of the imagination, make it so you can stay inside, stay inside. And it's hurting economically, of course, but it's absolutely necessary. But, you know, with an approach like that, three months of shelter in place, you can see we would barely keep it under the, the number of uh, hospital beds that we have. And we maybe would, maybe wouldn't overburden the system. And then at the very bottom, you can't even see the line. It's um, three months of Wuhan-style lockdown. So total lockdown of society would have definitely kept us under overburdening the healthcare system. But, and here's the scariest point, guys, and this is what I mean when I say everything was too late. They acted too late. For New York, the point of no return, which means, okay, if you act in this window, then it's possible you'll avoid overburdening the hospitals and overrunning the hospitals. The point of no return for New York was March 13th to March 18th. So we didn't act in time. So everybody was dragging their feet. Everybody was la-di-da. You know, the thing is spreading, and we're acting like, well, we only have a couple cases that have been proven that have been tested in the hospitals. <laughs> and so they act like, uh, you know, it is what it is. Let's see what happens. And then as the cases skyrocket, then the respective governors and Governor Cuomo in New York is like, oh, all right, yeah, we got to act. You had to act a while ago. When you start seeing cases where people are being tested, and, you know, it's proving that they have it. For every one case of somebody who's a, an official case, how many thousands of people are out there who have it and are in the early stages, who have it and just think it's, you know, a cold or the flu and they're staying home, who have it and have been spreading it, who are home and who, who are very sick but haven't gone to get tested yet and haven't been hospitalized yet. You have to assume that when you have one case that you've officially tested for, that there's so many people who have it and are currently spreading it. So that's when you lock it down, skis. But they didn't do it. They dragged their feet. New York dragged, dragged its feet. Forget it. The federal government with Trump and all his merry band of idiots was out there downplaying the virus in January, in February, in early March. It took, it took Trump until like March 15th. And again, we'll get to a segment on this later. I'll give you the video. It took Trump until like March 15th to be like, yeah, um, this is a pandemic. And I've always thought it was a pandemic. Cut to video of him like, it's just a flu. Everything will be totally fine. We have 15 cases. It'll be zero very quickly. So um, this is devastating. Now, I want to uh, tell you guys, go to covidactnow.org, look at your state, and it will give you the point of no return for your, for your state. So the governor needs to act before the point of no return. Some states are lucky enough where they still have time before they hit the point of no return. So if there's a lockdown ordered or, you know, a shutting of non-essential businesses and, and everybody kind of stays in place as much as possible. It's possible that you won't overburden your respective healthcare systems, but they have to act like now. You know, there's not that much time left, even in states that aren't too hard hit at the moment, because every state has some cases. Um, now, the final thing I'll show you is this. This is terrifying. So this lays it out for you here, the scenario. If we did no action in New York, okay, um, the estimated date for hospital overload is March 27th, March 27th, which is very soon. It's in a week. Now, I have to tell you, less than a week, I should say. I know because I have a doctor friend 
in New York City and his hospital, he says, is basically already hitting that point of no return. It will very soon, like it will probably hit it on the exact day that they're predicting if we took no action. So our late action is functionally like no action. So, and this is, again, firsthand from a doctor in the city who's saying we're in big trouble. So kind of like a worst case scenario. In that situation, what are the estimated deaths in New York alone? 392,000. It's possible that as a result of this virus, in New York alone, you have 392,000 deaths. And then you see the other options there as well. What if we just did three months of social distancing? Then New York hits hits, um, overburdened hospitals on April 3rd. You have 292,000 deaths. What if we do three months of shelter in place? Um, Then you have, it says it's outside the time bound. So in other words, it's already uh, too late, I guess. Um, The estimated deaths would be 50,000 if we did three months of shelter in place. And then... The final option, which, again, it was too late for, but three months of a Wuhan-style lockdown, if we had done that, we could have had only 4,000 deaths. It feels messed up to say only 4,000 deaths, but, you know, that compared to 50,000 or compared to 292,000 or 392,000, I mean, what do you want me to tell you? It's so much better. So, unfortunately, what we're looking at is a situation where we'll almost certainly have deaths in the hundreds of thousands. And that's not me speaking, that's this model, which is endorsed by a number of experts and doctors. And again, you can go to the website, you can see the list for yourself, but it's really not good. And we're acting way too late and we're dragging our feet way too much. And I can tell you this right now, every governor who hasn't needs to immediately lock everything down, immediately lock everything down. And the federal government better get on it producing emergency ventilators, producing masks. We do need a wartime mobilization effort because we need to increase the number of hospital beds in every major metro area in the country. We have to do it. We have to do it. And that's the only way we get ahead of this enough to to actually keep it manageable, not overrun the hospitals, and keep the death tally down. Because ultimately, it's going to be really, really ugly because we're handling this like total amateurs. When you look at a place like Taiwan or Singapore or South Korea, they had such strong measures in place, and they've had outbreaks previously, so they kind of knew how to deal with it and what to expect, that they kind of nipped this thing in the bud. Whereas with us, I mean, dragging our feet massively, not listening to the experts, acting way too late, doing half measures like crazy, you can't half-ass it when it comes to a freaking pandemic virus. So we're about to experience a lot of pain, and I hope everybody out there stays safe. I hope you social distance as much as possible because it's needed. Okay. Next. So there's your update on the coronavirus in terms of the raw numbers. Now we're going to show how terribly unprepared terribly unprepared Donald Trump is. Now, you know, I like to think that people understand that when I uh, criticize Trump, it's not an MSNBC-esque criticism. 
They criticize him no matter what. They're always over the top with it. They're always, in many instances, unserious with it. Um, they seem like way too self-aggrandizing, and they, lo- they seem like they bask in the soap opera nature of politics. And you get a whole bunch of nonsense criticisms, whether it's Maddow and, and Russiagate, the Mueller report, impeachment. Everything is just too over the top, too much, too unserious, too unmoored to reality. So I like to think, you know, even for people out there who might be Trump supporters, I've gained a little bit of respect in the sense that they know I only criticize them when it's substantive, when it's substantive. Now, I am, I'm a giant critic of the president. I am. Um, but I like to make sure that it's reasonable. Well, what you're about to see here is a new anti-Trump ad put together by The Recount. And what they do is they go back uh, to January. Now, the coronavirus outbreak, I think, was late December is when we first started getting official cases of it in China. Um, And then, you know, slowly but surely, it spread and it spread and it spread. What you're going to see here is these are Trump's comments from January, from February, from early March, and then today. And take a look at how unprepared he was and how he viewed this like he views every other problem. It's a, a marketing issue. It's, you know, something where you provide the counter narrative and try to pump it out there and dominate the debate by being louder and more aggressive with your counter narrative. Well, when it comes to something like a pandemic, you can't really override reality. Reality is just reality. And people are going to start showing up to hospitals and the hospitals are going to be overburdened and people are going to die. And it doesn't matter how good you market. So look at how unserious he was in the early days. We have it totally under control. It's one person coming in from China. We think we have it very well under control. We pretty much shut it down coming in from China. You know, in April, supposedly, it dies with the hotter weather. When it gets warm, uh, historically, that has been able to kill the virus. People are getting better. They're all getting better. And the 15, within a couple of days, is going to be down to close to zero. It's going to disappear. One day, it's like a miracle. It will disappear, and you'll be fine. Uh, They're going to have vaccines, I think, relatively soon. Not only the vaccines, but the therapies. Therapies is sort of another word for cure. We're talking about very small numbers in the United States. Our numbers are lower than just about anybody. It's really working out, and a lot of good things are going to happen, and we are responding with great speed and professionalism. It's going to go away. Yeah. No, I don't take responsibility at all. They're all be great. We're going to be so good. This came up. It, it, it came up so suddenly. This is a pandemic. I felt it was a pandemic long before it was called a pandemic. All you had to do is look at other countries. The coronavirus. You know that. Right? Coronavirus. And this is their new hoax. We have 15 people in this massive country. And because of the fact that we went early, we went early, we could have had a lot more than that. We're doing great. Our country is doing so great. And those numbers are about to get a lot, a lot worse. I don't know what the straw was that broke the camel's back with him. I don't know. Perhaps it was when the market started having these massive contractions, you know, perhaps because that's, you know, one of the things he hangs his hat on, it's the market. It's, oh my God, look at this. The stock market is up. Stock market, you know, 
hitting record heights, and he loves to brag about that. And he loves to, you know, conflate the idea that the stock market equals the health of the economy overall and your average American, which is bogus. It's nonsense. But that's what he always bragged about. That's what he always went to. And probably became real as a heart attack to him when he saw, oh, so I lose like half of my bragging rights as president. I just lost it because the market is now plummeting and falling off a cliff. And maybe that's when he started taking it seriously. But, I mean, you saw it, man. The fact that early on he was saying this is a Democratic hoax. Man, imagine being that much of a simpleton where you think that, like, any criticism that comes your way by definition is illegitimate because it's just them playing a partisan game. When in reality, like I explained earlier, no, Trump's approach to everything was playing a partisan game. He's an expert marketer. And he goes out there and he always, he always, always, always makes his own case. But even when it, you know, contradicts reality, he's like, I don't care. I'll just override reality. If I do, if I have enough arrogance and bluster and I'm strong enough and I'm persistent enough, then whatever I'm saying, it's the ultimate postmodernist approach to politics. I'll just override it. Truth. There is no truth. I'll make my own truth and then I'll bulldoze ahead. And I got to tell you guys, in so many ways, it had worked until he ran into a freaking concrete wall, which is a pandemic. So to go through some of the stuff he was talking about there, he said early on, we have it under control. Stop and think about the fact that when he was making these points, the administration was doing either nothing or next to nothing. But he just goes out there and says, yeah, we have it under control. It shows you there, there doesn't have to be any connection to reality or tangible action. It's just like he'll, he just says stuff. Um, then he says, well, with the hot weather, you know, it it can go away with the hot weather. Now, you know, for many versions of influenza, yes, it goes away with the hot weather. For this, many experts are saying, we do not know what happens, particularly because none of us have immunity to this new virus. So since none of us have immunity, it's possible that it just stays with us. Some uh, experts in the UK are predicting it will last all the way until spring of 2021. Um, Andrew Cuomo says that the lockdown in New York could last until June. So we don't know. I mean, it would be wonderful if there was an aspect of seasonality to this virus and it does just start going away, you know, in late April or May or whatever, but we don't know. And he would just say it. He just says it. It's like, okay, what are you doing? He's probably taking science advice and medical advice from watching like Fox and Friends because he always does that. He always just parrots whatever the hell's on Fox and Friends. Um, Then he talks about, oh, we're going to have vaccines relatively soon. Well, again, when you talk to the experts, they say absolute minimum before we get a vaccine is a year. Absolute minimum. That's if everything goes swimmingly. And we don't know if it will, but they say minimum a year. That's not really relatively soon. Then he says, oh, we'll have some therapies, and that's another word for cure. It's basically a cure. Even the drugs right now that are showing promise, and there are many, by the way. There's a few drugs that are showing promise. But the evidence shows they're only... They only work well with cases that are mild to moderate, that once you get to the severe level, that these drugs don't work as well. There's a Japanese drug and there's one other drug that's showing promise, but only mild to moderate cases. And usually when people show up to the hospital, they're already in the stage where it's severe. So, you know, these drugs could be great for people who might have it and don't know they have it and whatever. You just take that drug as a precaution or something. If you have a mild or moderate case, it could work well. But for a lot of the people showing up to the hospitals that end up needing to be intubated, it's not, it's not going to help, and it's not a cure. 
So again, totally misleading. Um, then he said, and I'll leave you on this one because this one is honestly the most evil. He talks about how, oh, our numbers, our numbers are lower than other places in the world. Well, one reason why that is is because we were just behind other places. Like the virus reached other places before it reached here. That doesn't mean that like this snapshot in time is, is permanent. No, the situation is fluid. The situation is evolving. So you could say, oh, we have 15 cases here. Trump, it's not like it's going to stay like that. He just he makes it seem like, okay, what it is now is what it will continue to be. And that's obviously not true. That's not the way the virus functions. Um, but when he brags about the numbers being low, there were stories that Trump, and I don't know if this is true because it seems so extreme. I hope it's not true. But there were stories that, you know, Trump was dragging his feet on getting the necessary tests because he didn't want the numbers to go up because he wanted to look like he was doing a good job. Again, I don't know if that's true, but if that is true, oh my God, what does that say about this guy? It, I mean, it doesn't say anything we don't already know about him, malignant narcissist and all that stuff, but I mean, to that extent, to the extent where you would say, you know what? Let's go slow getting our hands on these tests because I want to keep the numbers low because it makes us look better. If he actually did that, that is beyond unforgivable. Beyond unforgivable. Screwing over your own people for optics. Ah, see, there's only 15 people that have it. Well, we don't have any tests. The real number's in the thousands. Yeah, but we don't know that because it's not, a, it's not proven. Oh, that's so wrong. That's so bad. That's so evil. I, I can't. But there you go. You see how he handled it every step of the way. And how he handled it was treat it like a marketing problem, treat it like a marketing problem, treat it like a marketing problem, treat it like a marketing problem until he had no out. And it was in what, March, I don't know, 15th, 16th, 17th, something like that. He was finally like, oh, oh, yeah, this is a big problem. Actually, wait, that's not fair. What is it now? Oh, yeah, no, maybe that is right. Whatever the thing showed, I don't know. Uh, in the middle of March is when he was like, oh, okay, <laughs> so this is a problem. So uh, unforgivable and really dumb, and it just shows that we can't, we can't do basic things anymore, and that's really depressing, that, you know, post-World War II, we were this shining city on the hill to get corny about it, and, like, we had so much manufacturing that would happen here, and, you know, our society was one of the few that wasn't totally obliterated by World War II, and we just had so much promise, and then, you know, now we're at the point where we can't even effectively respond to a pandemic, something that in theory all it would require is more hospital beds, more ventilators, more masks, having, you know, the proper equipment and, and medicines ready. Like, we can't even do that. We can't even effectively do, like, hit pause on the economy and do a temporary lockdown to quarantine to let the virus die out. We couldn't even do that. I'll tell you, man, looking at how we've reacted from the position of countries that have reacted better, it's almost like they could have a sense of pity for us. Like, man, you guys are pathetic. And on this, I have to agree. Next. You're not going to feel any better after watching this clip, that's for damn sure.
CNN's Jake Tapper spoke to the head of FEMA about the current health crisis. And his answers, or shall I say lack thereof, were certainly not confidence-inspiring. How many masks does the federal government have right now, and when can they get to local hospitals? Well, when it comes to supplies, um, you know, we have been shipping from the national stockpile uh, for weeks. Uh, the demand on these critical items uh, is not only nationally, it's globally. Uh, so we, we, we've been shipping. We ship today. We're going to ship tomorrow. Uh, we're linking supplies not only from the national stockpile but from vendors and commercial donations. Uh, and it's just not about uh, the federal government buying it. It's also about uh, those hospitals and other facilities, governors, that if you find it on the market, go ahead and buy it. Uh, FEMA will reimburse you for it. So uh, this is a shared responsibility. Every American has a role to play in, in defeating the coronavirus. Do you have any specific numbers on how many masks the federal government has been able to acquire and how many have gone out the door to hospitals? Uh, it, it, is, it is a dynamic and fluid uh, operation. Uh, the president appointed FEMA five days ago to, uh, to manage federal operations. Uh, and since I've been here, we've been shipping uh, continuously uh, from federal warehouses and, again, connecting uh, you know, those governors that need uh, supplies to, to those who have it in, in the commercial sector. Do you have uh, even so, a rough number? Uh, I, I can't give you a, a rough number. I can tell you that it's happening every day. And my mission is operational coordination of all of these things, and that's my focus. So whether it's uh, supplies, vents, uh, you name it, we are finding it, identifying it, and shipping it to those who have requested it. You understand, though, of course, that the inability of the federal government to give a number in terms of masks alarms people. It makes people concerned that there aren't masks going out the door. I'm not saying that that's the case, but without a number, it doesn't fill people with confidence. Yeah, I, I'm not sure it's about an exact number. I, it really is. I think every American has a role to play. And, and so let me just give you an example. Uh, when it comes to testing, and Dr. Fauci said it yesterday, the president said it yesterday, uh, if you don't need a test, if you don't have symptoms, please don't get a test. Uh, for every test that we do that, uh, that someone doesn't have symptoms for, uh, that's PPE uh, not used well. So I ask every American, uh, if you have symptoms, go get a test. If you don't need uh, a test because you don't have symptoms, don't do it. That helps us. It helps governors. It helps your local community. Please play your part in this uh, effort to defeat the coronavirus. You just made a reference to PPE, that's personal protective equipment. It's what healthcare workers and first responders need to wear. And this brings me to my next question, because it's not just ma uh, masks that we're talking about, that there are shortages on the front lines, as you know. It's swabs, it's tests, it's ventilators. Obviously, it's FEMA's job to coordinate all these requests coming from all over the country. I want you to take a listen to just three governors in the last few days. All of the data's requests of the federal government regarding rising swab testing pods, swab testings, and testing reagent kits are on an indefinite backlog. Do you have the masks, the ventilators, anything you need to fight this virus? No, we don't. Do we have enough beds? Do we have enough gloves? Do we have enough PPE equipment? And the answer is no. For the governors of Nevada, uh, Michigan, and I'm sure you recognize uh, Governor Cuomo of New York, you said yesterday you've been getting requests for masks, swabs, ventilators, and more. When should local hospitals expect to receive these supplies? So it's all about priorities. We have been focused on the, the hot spots, New York City, 
Washington State, California, and others to make sure that we send these uh, critical items, and we, we understand they're critical, uh, to get them into the hands of uh, governors and medical professionals so they can treat uh, those patients uh, affected by the coronavirus. Uh, this is our mission. I have uh, 20,000 FEMA employees, and I have uh, all the employees of uh, 13 federal agencies, the private sector here, uh, devoting every single minute of every day uh, to meet this uh, demand. Can you tell us uh, how many tests, masks, ventilators uh, are in the demand? How many the governors have requested from you in terms of those I, items? I, 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 I can't give you the, the, the micro. I can say that there's hundreds of requests uh, from virtually every state in the union looking for the same exact things. Uh, and it's just not uh, the demand nationally. It's the demand globally uh, for, for all these items. And again, uh, we're trying to make sure that we uh, focus our efforts uh, to those hotspots that need it the most. And then if you don't need it right away, then uh, you're going to be a little bit farther down the list. But we'll, we'll get to you. Again, nobody's doubting the sincerity of your effort, but the lack of numbers is, is alarming because it makes people think that maybe we don't even have a full understanding of the problem. Um, let me ask you, the President suggested on Saturday that even though he invoked the Defense Production Act for the coronavirus response that would allow the military to supply more and even for the President to compel businesses to manufacture some of these well-needed supplies, even though the President's invoked it, he's not actually ordered any companies to manufacture masks, ventilators, et cetera. Has the President, as of now, Sunday morning, ordered any companies to make more, any, to make more of any of these critical supplies? Uh, no, and, and we haven't yet. Uh, okay, that last part is unforgivable. I live in New York. I live very close to the epicenter of where the first case was. I live pretty close to the city. I know because I have a doctor friend in the city, and he tells me they're almost already at the desperate point where the hospital is overrun and they're running out of drugs and they're running out of supplies. So to say, well, yeah, he invoked the Defense Production Act, which means he can make private businesses make masks, ventilators, so on and so forth, but he hasn't done that yet. What the hell are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Every single scientific projection I've seen shows we will way overburden the hospital system, not just in New York, but in every respective state. Some states are just a little further behind in terms of, you know, the virus didn't get there until a week later or whatever, but they're heading in the same trajectory. They're heading in the same direction. Every single state is going to have an overburdened healthcare system. To not immediately be pumping out ventilators and masks is unforgivable. What are you doing? And then, listen, that whole interview was a disaster. I mean, this really reminds me of um, Hurricane Katrina and the FEMA director then. Remember Bush going, <laughs> you're doing, doing a heck of a job, Brownie, as people are dying and they're doing an abysmal job. I mean, look, some of the things that happened there. How many masks are there? He can't answer. Okay, how about a rough number? Couldn't give a rough number. Um, then the guy says, oh, if you don't have symptoms, don't get a test. Okay, that means we still have a shortage of tests, and um, that's probably not going to change anytime soon. That's what that means. Guys, I know. I know people who are showing symptoms. They call their doctor. They talk to their doc doctor. The doctor's like, what are your symptoms? They explain it. By the way, symptoms match perfectly. The doctor goes, I don't think you have it, so just stay home and drink some fluids. Hopefully, you'll get better. My guess is they are telling that to everybody, unless they're at the point where they have the shortness of breath and they're really in danger and it looks like they might have to be intubated. 
I think they're just telling everybody who's showing symptoms, no, I don't think you have it because they don't have any tests and they don't have any place to put people because the systems are overburdened. They're already about to be overburdened. So what's happening is criminal. Compare this to what they've done in many other developed countries. If you have symptoms and you show up, not only do they quarantine you and give you treatment, they say, tell me everybody you've spoken to in the past week, and then they go find those people, and then they quarantine those people, and they test those people. This is the difference between how we're approaching it and how they're approaching it. We're acting like a freaking banana republic. Um, when it, Ch- Tapper asked him, hey, when, are, when can they expect to get the ventilators and the super important stuff? He says, his response is, he starts by saying, quote, it's all about priorities. We're going to like the hot zones first. Again, you didn't answer the question. When can they expect to get it? When? The fact that he can't just say next week, the fact that he can't just say, bro, we're producing millions of masks right this second. We're on it going as fast as we can. The fact he can't say that shows they're not ready. They're not doing even the basic stuff that they have to do. Oh, man, this is terrifying. This is terrifying. We've never seen anything like this before, man. From the market crash, which we'll get to in a little bit, the giant spike in unemployment that's definitely coming, to the fact that we can't even do, have basic preparedness for a freaking pandemic. We can't even get freaking masks. We can't get masks. We can't get ventilators. This is wild, man. We've never seen anything like this in our lives, ever, ever. This should be a wake-up call. It really should be. I mean, the fact that Trump fired the pandemic experts in 2018 is unforgivable. It's unforgivable. The fact that he kept the CDC and Health and Human Services, unforgivable. You can't do that. And we need to definitely, whenever this nightmare is over, we need to immediately put into place the proper steps, the proper processes for another pandemic, because another one is coming. I want to have a stash of enough ventilators to deal with the worst pandemic. I want to have a stash of enough ICU beds and masks. I want to have the proper shutdown procedures where we can effectively press pause on the economy, where we don't have these giant crashes and everything freezes up and everybody's begging for a bailout and unemployment skyrockets and they give breadcrumbs to the workers but bail out the CEOs. We can't go through this again, man. We can't go through this again. But this is, uh, that FEMA interview did absolutely nothing, nothing to make people feel better. If anything, they feel worse. So you're on your own out there, guys. Listen, yet again, to the extent that you can, you got to stay out of public. You got to stay away from people. You got to make sure you don't get this virus because ain't no help coming if you get it. It's just not. I'm sorry. With these hospitals overburdened, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? You have to stay out of society as much as possible. You have to try to keep yourself healthy because this level of incompetence is criminal. Okay, let me take a quick break. When we come back, Trump got into a heated exchange with NBC reporter Peter Alexander. We're going to talk about that. And I have a hell of a lot more for you, man. I got a really, really long show for you today because the world is falling apart. Stay right there. 
of a bitch. All right, I'm back, y'all. I'm back, y'all. All right, the media going after Trump. Good, bad, fair, not fair. Let's take a look. Trump got into a heated exchange with the NBC reporter Peter Alexander. This was fun. The FDA is working on it right now. Uh, the advantage is that it has been prescribed for a totally different problem, but it has been described for many years, and everybody knows the levels of of uh, the, the negatives and the positives. But I will say that uh, I am a man that comes from a very positive school when it comes to, in particular, one of these drugs. And we'll see how it works out, Peter. I'm not, I'm not saying it will, but I, I think uh, that uh, people may be surprised. By the way, that would be a game changer. But we're going to know very soon. But, but we have ordered millions of units. It's being ordered by, from Bayer. And there is another couple of companies also that, that do it. I've been right a lot. 
Let's see what happens. You know, can I conduct some science in the logistical area, Shandy? You know, the units that were ordered. <laughs> All right, I have a lot to say about this exchange. So believe it or not, I have mixed feelings on it. Before I get into it, let me just say that um, this is not, the stuff I'm going to say is not by any stretch of the imagination excusing Trump's abysmal handling of this outbreak. Because as you all know, and as I will continue to repeat, because it's true, Trump fired the pandemic experts in 2018 He cut the CDC. He cut Health and Human Services. He repeatedly denied that we had a problem. It took until, like, mid-March before he was like, oh, yeah, this is a pandemic. It's really bad, and I've been saying it's a pandemic for a long time. No, you haven't. You were saying it's a Democratic hoax. You were saying, oh, it's just like the flu. It'll go away with the hot weather. We have 15 cases. It'll probably be down to zero in no time. So I'm not excusing Trump here by any stretch of the imagination. But what I will say is this. Those questions really were stupid. They were so bad. The report, and somebody said on Twitter, I love this. They were like, this is literal pearl clutching. <laughs> like, dude is literally, good sir, you're being so impolite in violating the D.C. rules of decorum, good sir. Come on, with all your, like, their preening and self-aggrandizement. Like, the media thinks they're such heroes, but they, they really do a terrible job. Like, they do such a bad job, by and large. So his question is, hey, do you think that your inclination to put a positive spin on things is giving people false hope? Well, guys, I hate to tell you, but in this, on this very narrow, specific issue, Trump isn't necessarily wrong. The drug that he's talking about, um, there, there's one French study that showed good results, but there's issues with it because it wasn't double-blind. Um, there's other evidence that says, hey, maybe this drug isn't the best thing. Um, but there, there genuinely is mixed evidence. And what Trump is saying there is like, yeah, I have a feeling it'll work. You can criticize that if you want. I think that's a fair thing to criticize. But, hey, it might, it might not, but there's a question here. This is, this is a real thing. And for him to ask, like, oh, do you think your you know, need to put a positive thing on, spin on things is giving people false hope? No, because this drug, there might actually be hope with this drug. So that's not, and then, and then he goes on to say, well, what do you say to scared Americans? He was just saying that, hey, we have a drug that might work. So what do you say to scared Americans? I don't know. Maybe the thing I just said that you criticized me for. <laughs> like, what do you say to scared Americans? I was literally just talking about a drug that shows some promise. That's what I say to scared Americans. Now, again, I'm not excusing Trump on this because Trump, Handled this terribly. Handled it terribly. He downplayed it, downplayed it, downplayed it until he couldn't downplay it anymore. We're short on ventilators. We're short on masks. We're about to see a crisis, the likes of which I've never seen in my lifetime and you very likely haven't seen in your lifetime, depending on your age. But the overwhelming majority of you have not experienced a crisis like this in our lifetimes. But um, I think that that line of questioning, at a time when that reporter should be asking laser-focused questions on, you just invoked the, the Defense Production Act, and you're not demanding that they create the ventilators and they create the masks? Why are you doing that? Why are you dragging your feet? New York is about to be totally overwhelmed in a few days. The hospitals are going to be overrun. This is going to happen in virtually every state. Why are you not immediately mandating that you know these, um, whatever, former car factories 
tool up to make ventilators, which should be relatively easy in some instances with certain kinds of factories, why are you not going 100 miles an hour in the right direction and producing right now? Because we need it right now. Instead, you invoke the act and then you do nothing? What are you doing? At a time when really serious questions need to be asked, what's this guy doing? Do you think your need to put a positive spin on things is giving people false hope? Why? So why are you, in the middle of a pandemic, why are you asking a question about hope? Let's talk about our fee-fees. I don't care about your fee-fees or the country's fee-fees. I want results. I want results. I want them right now. That's what I want. That's what I need. I need you to make the ventilators. I need you to make the masks. I need you to go, go, go. I need the media to be on top of it. I need Trump to feel the pressure and to do it. Um, and the question, what do you say to scared Americans? Yes, man. Yes, we get it. I, I was tweeting this early on. Trump is like literally made in a lab to be the least comforting leader in a time of crisis. Because he's all about, you know, he's all about what you're seeing right here. Like, let's, Let's go at it with the media. Like, I'm, I'm the embattled president. Like, yeah, it's me against the world. But that's not who you want in a crisis. You do want somebody who has a different set of characteristics that are more leader-like. And, but what do you say to scared Americans? It's like the thing I just said, that, hey, we, all, we might have a drug for this thing. We're working on it. Maybe it'll work. Maybe it won't work. But we're still working on it. And, like... My point is the questions from the media should be a hell of a lot more serious than they are. I'm not excusing Trump. His response to this whole crisis has been abysmal, and there's no way around it. But the media should be doing a better job. And there is some promise in this drug, but there's actually more promise in a, in a Japanese drug that we covered on the show called uh, Favipiravir. And, you know, there's reason to believe that this drug is very uh, useful for people showing mild and moderate symptoms, as opposed to, I think, 11 days, the number was, showing um, testing positive for the virus. If you give them this drug early on, they only have the virus for four days. Now, it doesn't work in the severe cases, and I think that one of the issues with the drug Trump is talking about is the same thing. There's some evidence that it works okay early on, but then later on for the more severe cases, it doesn't anymore. If I'm president in this you know, crisis, the first thing I'm doing is I'm immediately getting, you know, by any means necessary, I'm creating ventilators, I'm getting them where they need to be, I'm creating masks, I'm getting them where they need to be. That's thing number one, like literally building new hospitals as we speak, immediately, getting more ICU beds, go, 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 go. But on top of that, you bet your ass I'm going to fast track any and all drugs that might help this thing even a little bit. If that means, that you know, cutting FDA red tape or whatever, I'm on it, I'm on it, there's no question there. So I think the reason why this back and forth is frustrating is because this guy's a self-aggrandizing dingbat. Um, it's funny I brought up bats and we're talking about the virus that came from bats. But anyway, um, I think he's a self-aggrandizing dingbat. I think his questions aren't serious. And I think that at a time like we have right now, on top of Trump needing to do a better job, the media does as well, because the media should be asking very pointed questions about very specific failings to try to fix them. Namely, the lack of ventilators, the lack of masks, the lack of hospital beds, the lack of, you know what else this guy should be talking about? He should be begging Trump to do the national lockdown order. And every single governor should be doing a lockdown order right now because what's going to happen is the same thing that happened in New York and the same thing that happened in Italy and Spain. We're going to drag our feet too long to the point of no return, and then our, our hospitals are going to get overrun. So we have to prevent that by any means, and we're not doing that. So that's where the question should be 
coming from. That's how you should go after Trump. Hey, man, you need to do a national lockdown right now. All the evidence shows that we're going to be overrun. Here's the latest date. Here's what's going to happen in the given states. What are you waiting for? You pressure him from a position that makes sense instead of this preening, self-aggrandizing nonsense about hope and your feelings. I don't care about that. Okay, next. All right, now we're going to talk about the economic fallout from this. There's quite a bit of stuff to talk about on this front. Let's go to Congress's response. So let's go to the economic response to the current health crisis. You won't be surprised to learn that every single thing has now been watered down. So originally the conversation was, oh, let's do a universal basic income. Um, I remember early on when Trump gave his first address from the Oval Office, he said in his speech, we're going to cover the, the price of the health care for the coronavirus. Immediately after, the health insurance companies came out and said, we didn't say that. We said we'll cover the testing. So it went from covering costs of the health care to just the testing. That was gone. The UBI thing started out with a conversation about UBI. Um, then some of the Democrats stepped in, including Pelosi and Schumer, and they were like, mm, we want to means test it. And then, boom, it was down to means tested. There was a conversation about recurring payments. Boom, that's down to one payment. So it is like exactly what you thought would have happened with how much of a swamp Washington, D.C. is. That's exactly what happened. Namely, all of the bailouts of corporations, the conversation has only gone more in their favor. Let's bail them out more. Let's give them a slush fund. Let's get rid of all the rules attached to a bailout. They did that. At the same time, they're just saying, and and Ken Klibenstein put it on Twitter perfectly, They're trying to figure out exactly how many pennies to give the average American to stop the economy from collapsing, but not a penny more. How much money do we have to give to the average American so that the economy doesn't collapse, but they have nothing extra? That's literally what they're trying to do right now. And it's infuriating. So here's uh, Jeff Stein reported on this here. By the way, I love Jeff Stein. He's one of the few like really serious reporters And um, I think he does a wonderful job. So I just wanted to say credit to you, Jeff, for following this stuff and making everything digestible. But here's what he says. Here's where Senate GOP ended up on checks. $1,200 for all individuals earning up to $75,000 a year or $150,000 for couples. $500 per child. $0 for those above $99,000 a year. And it's based on 2019 return or 2018 return. And it is not recurring. It's a one-time check. And there used to be a phase-in, but now the phase-in is eliminated. Okay, so um, that's a terrible idea. What they should have done, and Rashida Tlaib actually proposed a bill on this front, is prepaid debit cards to all Americans. Now, for the Americans at the higher end who don't arguably don't need it, um, you could just get that money back through taxes at the end of the year tax them an extra, and her number is $2,000 a month. So tax those people all that money back. But the point is, it's a lot easier to, you know, cut those debit cards and get them out there right now as opposed to a weird middle grounds means tested thing, which could potentially take longer. Um, So it went from UBI to now not UBI, one payment, and it's means tested. And if 
the full amount is for $75,000 and under, and then over 99,000 people get nothing. So, you know, that's just, it's such a weak plan because also like plenty of people who are making, who are in solidly upper middle class, who are making over $100,000 a year, um, a lot of them are going to lose their jobs too in this economy. Guys, we'll get to the story later, but we're talking over 20% unemployment, which might hit us, which is Great Depression levels. So your, your little, you know, weaselly middle ground of here, take a little bit of money, but not that much, like that's it's not going to do it. Now you could say, hey, maybe those people can apply for unemployment. True. But at a time like this, like the amount of money that we're talking about here for the level of crisis, especially a one-time payment, it's not going to do it. So you're going to want to have to revisit this in a month, which you're almost certainly going to have to do because things are not going to go back to normal after a month. So on top of cutting people checks, they need to do like an eviction freeze, uh, you know, a mortgage payment freeze, a rent freeze, all the big bills, student loans. You need to freeze those payments and give people basically effectively an allowance to continue to subsist during this crisis. But I really don't like this means-tested middle ground nonsense, and I really don't like the fact that it's a one-time payment because it's not It's not going to have it, – it's not going to – save people. There's still going to be so many people left behind by this, and I don't think that's okay. Um, Now, here's where else the bill fails miserably. miserably. Take a look at this. So this is from a a senior Democratic aide, and here's some of the major flaws in the bill. This is is what McConnell basically wanted. McConnell's corporate slush fund. McConnell bill includes $500 billion corporate slush fund. Bill has weak stock buyback language that can be waived by the Treasury Secretary. Executive compensation limits only last for two years. Language on worker retention is weak and includes easy outs for companies. There are no assurances in the language that workers will benefit. So they can still find loopholes and fire workers is what they're saying here. Language provides little transparency of the lending done by Treasury, the amount and not to whom the money is being sent. So Steve Mnuchin gets to pick who gets the bailouts and why, and he'll probably give it to whoever, whichever lobbyists, you know, are the most corrupt and slick and smooth talking. There's no specific provisions to protect individuals from eviction, foreclosure, or forbearance. Trump initially indicated he would do that, but now, you know, they're not talking about that anymore. They didn't, they have no provisions to protect people on that front. Um, Other major problems include no money for state and local governments, no additional SNAP funds, which is necessary now, that's food stamps no OSHA language to protect workers, no expanded emergency leave provisions, only three months of of UI, which I think is universal income, but it's not really universal. Although I'm not sure. UI, I'm actually not sure what that means. Only three months of UI, insufficient length given scope of crisis. Direct payments are not available to the millions of people who did not file a return in 2018 or 2019. In theory, uh, they could file a return, but millions won't. No funds to help with the treatments of the uninsured and does not provide adequate relief for the 44 million federal student loan borrowers. Okay, so here's the best way to sum it up. When it comes to the corporate bailouts, they were like, everybody shut up, everybody shut off your brain. We're going to put together a $500 billion corporate slush fund. We're going to give it out to whoever we want to give it out to, whichever companies we want to give it out to, and we're going to have super weak rules that the Treasury Secretary could waive if he wants. So if companies want to get a bailout 
fire a bunch of their workers, and then do stock buybacks, which just artificially pumps up you know, their own stock price, hey, they could do that. So in other words, what we're looking at here is a very similar situation to the 2008 subprime mortgage crisis and Great Recession, where a lot of the bailouts of Wall Street had no strings attached, and then these same companies, which just made terrible decisions, crashed the world economy, bankrupted their own companies, they gave bonuses to their executives as if the executives did a good job. And then they had the nerve to say publicly, well, we have to pay bonuses because we have to retain their talent. We have to retain the talent of the executives. So think about that. This bailout bill is turning into Naomi Klein, Shock Doctrine 101. Corporations trying to rob the taxpayers, loot the treasury, have few or no strings attached, bail out themselves, screw over workers, and then again, in the middle of a crisis like we have right now, a pandemic, no provisions to protect individuals from eviction, foreclosure, forbearance, um, weak support for workers, and no relief for 44 million federal student loan borrowers. Unforgivable. No money for hospitals. Unforgivable. No money for the uninsured who might need treatment. Unforgivable. So what happened is last night, Democrats voted against this. Uh, came up for a vote. Democrats voted against this. Good, good, good. So what does McConnell do? He goes, tomorrow when the market opens, we're going to reintroduce the bill and we're going to make the Democrats vote against it again. And then when the Democrats vote against it and the market tanks, the Republicans will turn around and go, see, the Democrats aren't taking this crisis seriously. And look at them. They're sitting around as the market tanks even more. Blame the Democrats. That's evil genius right there. But if you're the, if you're the Democrats, what should you do? Have the House make their own bill, pass their own bill because they have the numbers, then have that sent to the Senate, make them slap down your bill, and then boom, you flip the script right back. What, what are you talking about? We passed a, a perfect bailout. Look, we have all the provisions that we need. We know for sure we're taking care of workers in ours. There's no stupid bailouts. We have rules and strings attached to our bailouts of corporations. So, but we're looking after people. We're stopping foreclosures. We're doing all that stuff. And okay, here, if this is as big of a crisis as you say, and we agree it is, pass our bill. And then when McConnell doesn't, they get to go, ah, look, you're not taking this seriously. You tank the market. So this is what's happening right now. But the bottom line is all, all the populist head fakes that the Republicans did early on, they were just head fakes. They were just head fakes. Trump talking about stopping the foreclosures, um, talking about universal basic income, all head fakes, all of them. To be fair, the Democrats also were not good on the UBI, and they were more than happy to means test it, and they, in fact, led the charge on that front. But Republicans were like, yummy in my tummy. I agree. Means test it. You know, reduce the amount of money that goes to working people and just your average American. And increase. For the Republicans, it's more about the no strings attached or few strings attached corporate bailouts. That's all they really care about because they run the Republican Party. Mitch McConnell is totally beholden to his donors. So, unfortunately... We're in quite a pickle here because the American people need relief right now. Come April 1st, people are totally screwed, man. So many people live paycheck to paycheck. They need that relief and they need it right now. But it looks like what's going to happen is it's a deal with the devil because some relief is going to get to workers when all this is said and done. There will be some bill where some relief gets to, to regular Americans. But it's almost certainly going to be tied 
to an unacceptable corporate bailout, which is just like 2008. And by the way, as I alluded to in a previous show, you know what's going to happen? Even if all these industries get bailouts, cruise line industry, casino industry, you name it, so many say they need a bailout. What's going to happen is business is still going to be stagnant for at least another year. And then with business floundering, what's going to happen? They're going to come back in a year and say, I need another bailout? Because they're going to. They're going to. This is what we call moral hazard. So what do you do? What do you do in a situation like this? If you bail them out, the economy is still stagnant. They're still going to lose, you know, lose out and eventually go belly up. What I would do is temporary nationalization of every industry that desperately needs a bailout. Temporary nationalization. This way you can keep everything functioning. You don't, you don't have to run a profit immediately. You have the taxpayers basically be the owner of last resort of all these failing businesses. And the difference is when I say temporary, I mean temporary. When we get to a point where the businesses are firing back up, they're on their feet again, which could be a year, could be two years, could be three years before the economy really recovers. Well, then, okay, then you could turn it back over into the private marketplace and you could have it run like a standard private company again. But to me, that's the only reasonable path I see forward because it's very likely these businesses and these industries will still be hammered for the near future. So you just... It, if you want them to stay in business, you just can't have it be private now because nobody can make a profit in this economy with what's about to happen with 20, 30 percent unemployment. So I say temporarily nationalize all these industries. And this way you could keep everything going relatively business as usual. And you could basically hunker down and deal with the losses that are upcoming for the next year or two. So that's what I say. But of course, they're not going to do that. But what we're witnessing now, make no mistake about it, is a bigger crisis, in my opinion, than even the 2008 subprime mortgage crisis and Great Recession was. I think this will way surpass that, and everybody needs to prepare for what they're about to see. Okay, next. I don't know how it happens, but like once a week, I get a freaking eyelash in my eye. I don't know how this happens, but it's goddamn annoying, and I hate it. Okay. All right, now the economic impact of all this, and it is really, really ugly. What's happening with the economy right now is unprecedented in my lifetime and in your lifetime, unless whoever's listening to this was around for the Great Depression. Um, this far surpasses, or I should say will surpass, the Great Recession. Now, we've talked about the health aspect of this. That's obviously the main concern. Um, but without a doubt, it's leading to an economic situation which is pretty much unprecedented. So take a look at these numbers. This is going to scare you to death. The Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis President James Bullard predicted the U.S. unemployment rate may hit 30% in the second quarter because of shutdowns to combat the coronavirus with an unprecedented 50% drop in gross domestic product. Bullard called for a fiscal response to replace the $2.5 trillion in lost income that quarter to ensure a strong eventual U.S. recovery, adding the Fed would be poised to do, mo do more to ensure markets function during a period of high volatility. Everything is on the table for the Fed as far as additional lending programs, Bullard said in a telephone interview 
Sunday from St. Louis. There is more that we, that we can do, if necessary, with existing emergency authority. There's probably much more in the months ahead, depending on where Congress wants to go. So um, just so you understand, now the way that they calculated the unemployment rate back during the Great Depression was different. So it was a little bit different. So these numbers aren't perfectly analogous. But the peak unemployment rate, the old way they calculated it during the Depression, was 24.9%. If we hit 30% unemployment, this is the next Great Depression. This is the next Great Depression. During the 2008 subprime mortgage crisis and Great Recession, I don't remember perfectly, but I think it was like 10 or 12% unemployment was the peak. We're talking about double or triple that. And again, the way that they calculate it is kind of BS. There's a different way of calculating it called the U6 or U7 unemployment rate, which is a lot more accurate. And um, basically, the general rule of thumb is take what the, the official unemployment rate is and double it, and that's more like the actual unemployment rate. So... When it was 10% during the Great Recession, the real unemployment rate was like 20%. Um, if we hit 20% unemployment or 30% official unemployment, we're talking about 40% to 60% unemployment. Now, listen, one of the reasons for that is we largely have a service economy. And service economy can't function if the economy grinds to a halt. And everybody's kind of holed up because of the pandemic. So the economy is just grinding to a halt. This is what I mean. We've never seen anything like this. Because what are you going to do in a situation where a pandemic is ripping through your society and the only way to stop it is basically a lockdown? So part and parcel of a lockdown is like an economic freeze-up as well. So it's going to happen. There's no way around it. There's no way around it. So what do you do in a situation like that? Well, listen, I've told you guys already what D.C. has to do is a mix of freezing all of the essential bill payments, rent, mortgage, student loans, so on and so forth. Um, and then for the duration of the crisis, gone. You don't have to worry about paying it during the duration of the crisis. And it's not like when you come back, you have to pay. Like, let's say the crisis lasts three months. Okay. When you come back, you don't owe three or four months of mortgage or rent. No. That's just erased. Gone. So you freeze that. And then you have to give people a universal basic income, an allowance during this time frame, which allows them to pay the remaining bills that they have that are not frozen for the moment. So, I mean, that's the only way I could see out of it. And we have to, you know, another thing is you would think that all these years we would have found out a way to functionally press the pause button on the economy. Like the stock market, you know how the stock market automatically shuts off when it drops, when it drops too fast? when it looks like there's going to be a run on the banks, everything just shuts off. So can't we have effectively a pause button for the broader economy where only the, the essential businesses stay open, all the others are closed, and everybody basically stays home, and then you have the emergency procedures go into effect, the emergency processes go into effect, where, like I said, it's a freeze on the major bills, you get the automatic allowance to pay for the non-essential um, Bill, you know, when I say that, I mean, whatever, your food, Netflix, <laughs> whatever you're doing during this time of crisis, internet, like the major bills should be paused, certain ones 
you know, obviously won't be. But I think that's the only way to really get through this and weather the storm. But unfortunately, what you're seeing is we have no provisions in place to do an effective lockdown. So the economy, like the market's still open and everything just kind of immediately plummets and crashes, which leads to more pain and more desperation. I'll, I'll get you to what some other countries are doing during this crisis, which is a slightly different approach than what I'm talking about. But um, like the UK is having, the government is paying 80% of workers' wages, and, but they're only paying it if they keep the workers on. So what's happening is people are getting furloughed. They're not getting fired, you see? And so they have, I think their emergency approach is a lot more intelligent than what we're doing. What we're considering now is a tiny crumbs payment to people not freezing the major bill so that people can't afford the bills that they're going to get, but then most importantly, giant corporate bailouts, which are going to turn to naught anyway because the companies are still going to go bankrupt because I think the economy is going to lag for a year or two now. If you bail out the casino industry and still nobody comes to the casinos, it's only a matter of time before they're going to want another bailout. So um, what we're looking at here is abysmal. 20 to 30% unemployment is a nightmare scenario, and so many people would be hurt. And Congress is dragging their feet on acting to help average people, and that's terrifying. So what else is going on? Well, take a look at this. The Federal Reserve to lend additional $1 trillion a day to large banks. The Federal Reserve moved with unprecedented force and speed Friday to pump huge amounts of cash into the financial system to ease disruptions that have escalated since the viral outbreak. The New York Federal Reserve Bank said it will offer $1 trillion of overnight loans a day through the end of this month to large banks. That is, in addition to $1 trillion in 14-day loans, it is offering every week. Banks so far have not borrowed nearly as much as the New York Fed is offering, and the loans are quickly repaid. None of how? None of the funding is from taxpayer dollars. Wall Street analysts say the huge number is intended to calm markets by demonstrating the Fed's ability to lend short-term is nearly unlimited. See, this is fascinating because during a crisis, the way the federal government is acting they're acting as if MMT, modern monetary theory of economics, is true. Now, modern monetary theory, if you talk to a conservative, um, a conservative economist in times where there's not a crisis, they'll tell you, no, you can't do this. This is wild. This is reckless. You can't just immediately declare, you know, the Fed is just creating money and pumping it out there to keep markets functioning conservative economists would be like, no, you can't do that. We need a finite money supply. You can't just artificially create money and pump it out there. You're going to lead to massive inflation. You're going to have all these problems associated with it. But during a time of crisis, you know, everybody's like, okay, no, seriously, we need to stop like the worst case scenario and a giant Great Depression from happening. So what are we going to do? I don't know. Anything we can do, throw everything we got at this thing. So the Fed is just trillion dollars a day, loan it, pump it out there. Who cares? Now, they're right. The, you know, what the Fed is doing is not the same thing as, as tax money. It is something else, isn't it? That when they think their back is against the wall and they have no other option, they're like, just do it. Just do it. Nobody is like, how you going to pay for it? How you going to pay for it? How you going to pay for it? How you going to 
Nobody asks that. Nobody asks that because it's a time of crisis. It's like when there's a war. Think of World War II. Could you imagine somebody giving a speech during World War II? We're up against Hitler. <laughs> and they're like, you know, in theory, I like the idea of taking this guy down. But I have to ask the question. How are we going to pay for it? Nobody, everybody would be like, that's, what? That's your concern? We'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. www.willfigureitout.com. So, like, they get it. Oh, my God, the market is imploding. It's collapsing. I don't know. Let's just create a trillion dollars and pump it into the economy. Okay. That mindset, but with things that are absolutely necessary that are a national crisis, like homelessness. Like homelessness. Let's just end it. Like the lack of universal health care. Tens of millions of people uninsured. 45 to 68,000 die every year because they don't have access to basic health care. I don't know. Fund it. Just fund it. What are you doing? Free college. I don't know. Guys, free college only costs like $60 billion. Here they're just like trillion dollars. Boom. Disperse. Disperse it to the banks and to Wall Street. Dispersed. And nobody bats an eyelash. Not a single conservative commentator. Nobody on Fox News. Nobody on CNBC. Nobody on Fox Business. I don't know. This is very irresponsible. And how are you going to pay for it? You can't just create money. Money doesn't just grow on trees. Well, it turns out, and this goes back to the MMT point, it turns out when you have a sovereign currency, the United States government controls its own currency, you actually can kind of do whatever you want. Because you know what? You're never going to go bankrupt. Because you could just print more money. Now, I get it. That does have some negative consequences and side effects in due time with certain conditions arising. You do have to worry about inflation, for example. But the fact of the matter is, it is very, very different from a person trying to balance their own budget. Because you don't make your own money. So there's obviously a fundamental difference there. And you do have more leeway to act. So, but I mean, think about that. A trillion dollars a day, a trillion dollars a day, a trillion dollars a day. I don't know. To me, I think it would be a lot more reasonable if we just had the proper processes in place where we could effectively press pause on the economy and only have the essential functions still going on. And, you know, again, immediate uh, emergency package set up where we need to prepare for something like this for the future because another pandemic will happen at some point. And that should be an option. All non-essential businesses, press a button, boom, shut down, market shut down, only the essential business is functioning. It's effectively a lockdown order. In theory, it makes sense. Freeze the, the major bill payments, uh, give a UBI for the, non, for the ones that you still have to pay. Like this is, I think that's a reasonable approach. Um, but yeah, look at that, man. We're talking about 20 to 30% unemployment, and the Fed is like a trillion dollars a day to the major institutions. Imagine if the same urgency that they use to prop up financial markets, imagine if that urgency was used to prop up the people in a situation like this. The country would look a lot different. We wouldn't have nearly as many homeless people. We wouldn't have nearly as much poverty. Um, But the bottom line is, when they think it's absolutely necessary, they do it. They find a way. They get the money. There is a difference between the Fed and tax money. But nonetheless, the principle is still the same here. Um, They're operating with the logic of MMT. You know, they're, they're basically acting like Stephanie Kelton, who's the chief, you know, leader of the MMT movement, where she says, we control our own sovereign currency. Technically, 
you know, we could do whatever we want. That's exactly what they're doing. I just wish that mindset was also applied to looking after the people. All right, next. Going to give some credit to to Andrew Yang here. He's going to be happy with this story. Americans are now overwhelmingly in favor of left-wing ideas that they formerly were not in favor of. Um, actually, some of them they weren't in favor of. Other ones they were in favor of. But specifically, let's look at the issue of UBI. So on March 2nd, UBI was supported by just 33% of Americans, and it was opposed by 48%. So it was significantly underwater, significantly, only 33% supported. March 17th, after this crisis had really taken hold and people are getting laid off left and right, and we got quite a disaster on our hands, look at that. Support 58%, oppose 26%. So now UBI is overwhelmingly popular. Now, you could argue that maybe the American people will only say in a time of crisis UBI should be done. Um, But my response to that is, okay, then we should definitely do it at least in a crisis. I personally would support, you know, what is effectively a Social Security for all check. I would support that beyond just the confines of a crisis. But, you know... um, Now it's obvious that it's necessary, and people have flipped, and now they're totally in favor of it. Now, the next one is interesting. Do you support or oppose the idea of the government taking action to make COVID-19 treatments free? Among all voters, or all Americans, I should say, 68% support, only 17% oppose. And then even among conservative respondents, 55% support only 27% oppose. So think about those numbers, because I think that's so telling. When we get hit upside the head with a national crisis, people have been saying this on Twitter, but everybody appears to be a democratic socialist in a crisis. It's never like people going, you know, the government should really stay out of this and we'll take care of it. Everybody's reaction, no matter where they are on the political spectrum, is like, we got to do something, man. The government's got to step in. This has to be a top-down effort. We can't just, you know, ragtag on a local level or whatever, try to piece together a thing because it doesn't make sense. It won't work. So everybody's like the government has to do something. The fact that this outbreak has made it so that only 27% of Republicans oppose having free treatment, I agree with them. Now, just take it one step further, though. This is a pandemic. Everybody understands it. Everybody's, you know realizing how devastating a situation this is. But if somebody is going to get a, and we'll get to numbers later, but a bill from the hospital that's tens of thousands of dollars for this treatment, tens of thousands of dollars, and they can't afford it, what difference does it make to the person getting the bill if it was this outbreak, this health crisis that did this to them, if it was cancer? If it was a heart attack, if it was a stroke, if it was some other infectious disease, 
What's the difference to them if they're still getting a bill for tens of thousands of dollars and they can't afford it and they might go bankrupt? By the way, we have 500,000 medical bankruptcies every single year. You know, I reckon that these conservatives, any of them that have had their own personal experience where they had a situation like that, if you ask them, they'll definitely be like, all of it should really be taken care of. Healthcare in general is something that should kind of be off the table and paid for. Because once you have personal experience with it, once you see how it ruined you and you don't think of yourself as like a leech on society or a parasite or lazy or whatever, people think of themselves like they're normal everyday people and, you know, they're doing what they can to do well in society. Once it affects you and you realize how unjust and irrational and dumb the system is, then people go, oh, yeah, this isn't right. But it's funny because the pandemic has that same that same reaction. It evokes that same reaction in people where they go, oh, well, obviously people had no control over this. And if you get, if you get this, what are you going to do? You should go bankrupt because you had bad luck and got this thing. Even conservatives are going, I don't know about that, man. That doesn't seem right. I agree, except just extend that, mind, that mindset to other illnesses as well. And then you'll arrive at, you know, where the rest of the developed world is. Um, but we're there, though. We're there. And I've told you guys this before, but these left-wing ideas are usually popular, except UBI, with the exception of UBI. The left-wing ideas are usually popular even in not, not in times of crisis, but definitely in times of crisis, now it shoots through the roof. So there's a disconnect between the left-wing ideas and the fact that we have a lack of left-wing candidates getting elected. We've got to do a better job as a movement, as an ideology, connecting the dots for people and letting them know that this isn't pie in the sky, this isn't out there, this isn't unicorns and fairy dust and rainbows. This is, this is moderate, rest-of-the-world type stuff. It's problem-solving, and that's what we're here to do, and you agree with us, and you're going to vote for us. We need to connect those dots more. But either way, we're there. People now love UBI. They love universal health care, at least for treatments for uh, this outbreak, although most polls show people support Medicare for All even beyond just this. But the numbers for this one are overwhelming. So we're there. We just have to transfer this into votes to actually try to enact these policies. Okay. I am going to take a quick break, and then when we come back, I still got a thousand more on the current crisis. There's no way around it, so stay right there. We'll be right back.
right, we back, baby. <clears throat> we are back. We are back. And let's talk about, I think we're on the story of price gouging. Price gouging time, price gouging time. All of the weaknesses in our economy are being highlighted with the ongoing health crisis. And, of course, one of the weaknesses is uh, predatory capitalist price gouging people. So look at this from the Hill. We'll start here. Hospital CEO says supplier is charging $7 for face masks that typically cost 58 cents. I mean, I have a lot to say about that up front. Hospitals are sort of notorious for price gouging people. So you have a price gouger getting price gouged. Um, Now, you can make the case, well, this is just, you know, normal supply and demand. Um, And there's definitely a shortage in a crisis. But, you know, jacking up the prices only does what? Makes it so that hospitals that are in more well-off areas that have more money are much more likely to get it than hospitals in more poor areas, which means that the people going to a hospital in a poor area, the workers there are much more likely to get screwed. So, you know, this goes back to something that I've been pushing for a while now, which is basically everything related to health should be nationalized. I believe that. Um, Now, again, that's not to say I think every aspect of the economy should be nationalized. I I genuinely don't believe that. I think there are many areas where uh, nationalization is actually leads to worse outcomes. I think any like consumer products, video games, whatever, couches, TVs, stuff like that, all consumer goods should definitely be in the private marketplace. But when you talk about big pharma, when you talk about hospitals, when you talk about health insurance, like all this stuff, having the profit motive involved just always leads to worse outcomes. And we're watching it unfold right in front of our eyes. So what we really need to do, because the bigger problem is there, we're just, we don't have enough masks. Um, what Trump really needs to do is invoke the Defense Production Act, which he has done, but he hasn't instructed, okay, this place is making, you know, this factory is now going to make ventilators, this factory is now going to make masks, this company is going to be involved. He hasn't done that yet, and he needs to do that ASAP. So that's one example. Let me give you another here. This is from the Financial Times, but uh, Mark Thompson is tweeting about it here. U.S. pharmaceutical company increased the, the price of chloroquine, an anti-malarial which is one of the drugs that is being tested against COVID-19, on January 23rd, the drug price rose 98% to $7.66 per 250-milligram pill and $19.88 per 500-milligram pill. So when the outbreak first happened in China and there was a reason to believe that this might be one of the drugs that's effective against it, they jacked up the price massively. It's an it's a anti-malaria drug, but they say, oh, there's, there was reason to believe that this drug might help in fighting this outbreak, and they're testing it, and there's some promise, there's some contradictory evidence, some contradictory studies out there, but uh, they jacked up the price, of course. So now, if all this isn't uh, you know, enough for you, I do have one more story for you. 
this is from Time. They say the total cost of her COVID-19 treatment, $34,927.43. So what they're talking about here is um, a woman by the name of Danny Askini. She's uninsured. She had lymphoma. And she needed a bunch of testing and treatment because they thought originally that whatever was wrong with her was tied to her lymphoma, and the tests were coming back with inconsistent results. And so she had to go a bunch of times to figure out what was going on. And then eventually they learned she had this virus, and she got a bill for $34,927.43. Remember... This is happening at the same time that every single day the Fed is pumping a trillion dollars into the banks. Every day, a trillion dollars. Now, I get it. There's a difference between the Fed, the central bank, versus taxpayers and the government. I get it. There is a difference there. There is a distinction, and there is a conversation to be had. However, when you have a pandemic, to have a system where individuals can go bankrupt for their medical bills, can't afford their medical bills. I don't think people realize that a situation like this makes us all less safe. Imagine a situation where somebody works at a restaurant, they're uninsured, they have symptoms. Rent is coming up, they're not sure if they could pay the bills. So they go to work when they're not feeling so great. They don't have health insurance, they can't get the treatment, they don't have paid time off, so they can't take the time off. They don't have paid sick leave. They can't take the time off even more. So you end up going to work feeling the symptoms and spreading it to more people. All this could have been avoided. Paid sick leave, you know, paid time off, universal health care, actually having the respective state governments and the federal government act sooner and do a lockdown sooner. It all could have been avoided. Instead, this thing is spreading like wildfire. It's ripping through the country, roaring through the country. And we got situations like this where somebody with underlying health conditions and no insurance gets billed 35 grand for treatment of this. If you don't think that's going to, if people hear about this, you don't think that's going to disincentivize some people from going to get treatment, even if they have very bad symptoms? I got a bridge to sell you if you believe that. Definitely disincentivizes people. This, uh, This dog-eat-dog world and economy that we live in, it's not good. It's not good. We need some very simple, basic, straightforward reforms that would improve the system and make it less vicious, less draconian, because right now it certainly is those things. Okay. MSNBC host Ali Velshi um, is really good on the issue of health care. I've had massive disagreements with him on foreign policy and some other issues, but he's Canadian, and so he knows quite a bit about health care. Uh, he stands the, that the Canadian system is objectively better than the U.S. system. Um, so he got into it with Republican Congressman Buddy Carter on this issue of health care during this outbreak that we're dealing with. Um, let's take a look. 
We have, we, we're about to approve something in the next day or two from, two from Congress that will exceed $2 trillion, which, as you know, would probably cover Obamacare and all student debt in the country. Are we cool with the idea that we should probably be spending our money on universal health care at this point as a medical professional? Well, what I hope we don't see is universal health care, is Medicare for all, come about as a result of a crisis. I don't want to see us have socialized medicine as a result of a crisis. And I certainly don't want us to have socialism as a result of a crisis. There well, are but, people but, in but, Congress, but hold on, hold on, hold on. Hold on. Hold on. You're, you're just talking to a Canadian, right? You're talking to a Canadian. Uh, 50, I'm just guessing here, top of my head, 58 countries in, in the world, all of which are uh, highly developed countries, have universal medicine, many of which were brought in by conservative governments. Actually, a conservative idea. In the United States, it was first floated as a conservative idea. In Massachusetts, it was done by a, a Republican conservative governor who's now a member of the Senate. Universal health care is not at all a, a liberal concept. It's not a socialist concept at all. Well, unfortunately, it's a concept that doesn't work, and all you have to do is look into those countries that have it right now, and you'll see that they are not getting the type of health care that we get here in America. If you're sick anywhere in the world, where you want to be is the United States of America, oh. because we have the best health care system in the world. We have access to prescription medications that those countries that you speak of don't have access to. That's the kind of thing that we're talking about here when we talk about socialized medicine, when we talk about Medicare for all. Uh, I mean, look, with, with the exception of cancer outcomes, there's no outcome in the United States that is better for a multiple of what other OECD countries cost. But if we do have the best health care system in the world, why is why South Korea, Singapore, Hong Kong, Japan, and Taiwan all handled this better than we have? Damn. He sort of schooled them. You know, not for nothing, that video just makes me sad because we have somebody who's a congressperson who's representing Americans and the stuff he says and the stuff he clearly believes, no connection to reality. It's just, you know, it's, he's been totally propagandized. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm sure if we go and look at the amount of money he's raised from different special interest groups, he's probably taken money from health insurance companies. So I'm sure some of it, there's an aspect of corruption that impacted his worldview here. But I actually think he's sincere in believing what he said, which is, hey, the U.S. has the best healthcare system in the world, and this is where you want to be if you get sick. I think he actually believes that. I would change what he said very simply to, we have the best healthcare system in the world if you're like a Saudi prince or in the top 1%. If you're an average person, if you're part of the 99%, we certainly do not have the best healthcare system in the world. And as uh, Ali Belshi rightly points out there, all the evidence points in that direction. All the evidence points in that direction. So I kind of feel bad for him, even though I'm also just like, a little sickened and disgusted by the fact that he's in a position of power and he actually gets a vote and he could do stuff, you know, that directly affects all Americans. Um, and obviously he would never support a bill for some sort of nationalized healthcare system, which we desperately need. Um, so I like how he said, oh, we shouldn't have socialized medicine because of this crisis. Guys, in Spain, they didn't, not all of their hospitals were public. They had many private hospitals. One of the first things they did in the wake of this crisis is nationalize all the hospitals. Why? It's the only way to have them up and running and successful during this crisis. It was a matter of necessity. By the same token, all these businesses that are coming to Washington right now begging for a bailout hat in hand, you know, 
temporarily nationalizing them is the best possible way to move forward. Because if we give them a bailout, what's going to happen? They're probably just going to go bankrupt again. They're going to go belly up again because the economy is ground to a halt. And we're not going to see business returning to pre-crisis levels for quite a while. The idea that like, hey, now, let's not implement the solution because we have a problem. Actually, yes, that's exactly what we should do. We should implement the solution because we have a problem. That's exactly what we should do. Um, and those countries, so I will say this. I think the more important factor in dealing with this outbreak is how quickly you lock down, how quickly you quarantine, how quickly people start social distancing. I think that that's more important than whether or not you have a national healthcare system. So I do think that's the overriding factor. However, yes, absolutely, countries that have uh, single-payer systems and they acted quickly, they're going to fare the best. And one of the reasons is you're going to have fewer cases, but the cases that you do have, you can handle better. You know, places that have had previous outbreaks too, like Taiwan, like Singapore, they had emergency, you know, procedures in place where they have the proper number of beds that they need and they have more ventilators than we do and masks. It's funny, he's talking about how we're so great. We're about to be totally overrun in this country. Lack of ventilators, lack of masks, lack of beds, lack of certain drugs. It is, it's a nightmare scenario. So what he's talking about is just totally disconnected from reality. The most important thing in dealing with this pandemic Acting early, making sure you don't overburden your hospitals, having all the supplies and medicines that you need. And yes, it absolutely helps to have a universal system because we just covered a story. Somebody in this country got a $35,000 bill, $35,000 bill because they had COVID-19 and they had some underlying pre-existing conditions. They were battling lymphoma at the same time. Imagine getting a bill for any amount of money after having this, this uh, virus. Imagine getting a bill. A lot of people can't afford it, especially at a time when we're going to have 30% unemployment, 20 to 30% unemployment, according to the Fed, not me. So this guy, I think he's delusional. I do. And um, it's really sad when you have people, like he, he seems to believe the things he's saying almost in like a religious manner. You know what I mean? Almost like there is no, there is no amount of evidence or data or reason that could get him to change his view on it. Because I'm telling you, if what we're about to witness doesn't change people's view on it, they ain't going to change it, ever. doesn't matter that we're about to see, you know, every hospital in major metropolitan areas likely get overrun. doesn't matter. doesn't matter at all. Um, he'll still think, like, we have the best system and we handle it the best, even though that's going to be nowhere near accurate. All right, next. An underreported story during this crisis is this one from Rolling Stone. The Department of Justice wants to suspend certain constitutional rights during coronavirus emergency. The Department of Justice has secretly asked Congress for the ability to detain arrested people indefinitely, in addition to other powers that one expert called terrifying. So effectively what they want to do here is suspend habeas corpus, and um, they want to do this thing, which is, the best way to describe it is indefinite pre-arrest. So if they arrest you because they suspect you did something, you committed a crime, 
and then, oh, my God, we've got to lock everything down because we have a pandemic, so what are we going to do? We have no choice. We've got to lock everything down. What they're saying is even if this thing lasts for a year, two years, we want to, even if you were arrested for something minor, we want to have the ability to lock you up indefinitely. We, it's a pre-arrest. You're not, there's no trial. There's no you know, speedy process. Hey, we can't do anything because you know, we we're dealing with this outbreak. So I could arrest you for a low-level crime, keep you locked up for a year or however long it takes before this thing goes away, and then I could come and give you a trial or whatever after that. So... Yes, that would be suspending habeas corpus. That would be functionally indefinite pre-arrest is what we're talking about there. That's terrifying. And I definitely don't think that should be the case. And in fact, if anything, there's been many articles coming out recently. Many countries around the world are like emptying prisons as much as humanly possible. Why? Because this thing can spread in prisons very quickly. And it could be a nightmare scenario. Like, it is the worst possible place to be in a situation like this. Overcrowded, tiny places where you're right on top of each other. So a lot of places are like, as a matter of health necessity, they're kind of releasing as many people as they possibly can release. Um, other countries are doing that. I think some states are doing that in the U.S., although I'm not 100% sure. But in New York, they're not doing it. And this is a big issue. This is a giant issue. Um, and the government is asking to go in the opposite direction. Instead of hey, for health reasons, we've got to clear out as many people as we possibly can, they're saying, no, allow us to indefinitely pre-arrest people and suspend habeas corpus and just have them in limbo as long as necessary. Woo, that's a tough one. I would say no to that. That is wild. This is just, these are expansive authoritarian powers that I think are definitely unconstitutional and un-American. And um, it's kind of scary, some of the stuff that's being considered. By the way, the other thing that just came out right before I came on air is apparently Trump is considering next week just acting like everything goes back to normal and saying, everybody go work, everything's fine. As like literally it would be the height, the peak. The peak is actually in about 40 days, but like during the time of an outbreak and a crisis when the cases are exploding, he's thinking about pretending everything goes back to normal. Hey, everybody go out there and act like nothing happened. This crisis is showing, exposing all the weaknesses in our system. And there are many, and it is terrifying. There are also heroes, guys. There are heroes during this time of crisis. Lake Worth Beach City, Florida, had a local government meeting, and um, Commissioner Amari Hardy and Mayor Pam Triolo went at it with each other. They got into a big argument. Um, also part of this argument is city manager Michael Bornstein, and he's siding with the mayor. This right here is Amari Hardy. This is about how they've dealt with the pandemic. That's what this argument is about. And... Basically, they're casually shutting off utilities for their residents at a time when they weren't supposed to do that. So Amari Hardy is really angry about this, and he's speaking up. Take a look.
can we do better? There's always things that pop up that we can do better on, um, and I call the question. I'm sorry, that's not how this works. We each have an opportunity to speak five minutes. I thought we, I thought we did. Yeah, the question. No, I'm sorry. We've been that's not how calling the question works. You need a second, and you need to vote Should on. Can I have a second for calling? So, the are you question? telling me that you're going to keep me from talking right now? You've talked all evening. Look, I'll look here. You're calling me disrespectful because I've interrupted people. But this gentleman has turned off people's lights in the middle of a global health pandemic. That's what that gentleman did. Point of and order. And you think I'm disrespectful for interrupting? Point of order. This gentleman has point had the ability to order. do any number of things. Point we could have banned large gatherings. We could have closed the beach. We could have put a moratorium on 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 I one utility cut off. I recess. Also, not within your power. And the attorney the has held that that's true. I recess the meeting. You came up with new rules at the beginning of the meeting, and then you didn't even want to follow the rules that you came up with. This is a banana republic is what you're turning this place into with your so-called leadership. Does a recess mean that we will be... Yeah. I don't, I don't care anything about this. I don't care anything about this. Does we could have been talking about this last week. Can we, we cut off people's utilities this week and made them pay what could have been their last check to us to turn their lights on in a global health pandemic. But you don't care about that. You didn't want to meet. But every other year you go around and beg people for their vote. Can we uh, explain well, the reason? You care more about your relationship with that guy than you care about the relationship with the people who don't go to work. Oh, Lordy, you are done. You are done. You're done. Disrespectful is what you've done to the working people in this city. I didn't do anything. You failed to act. I didn't. When you're a leader, you failed to act. You said you didn't do anything. You failed to act. Oh, when you had an opportunity. residents had their power shut off at the same time the city discontinued power shutoffs. And Amari's screaming against it. He's like, no, 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 that's not okay. And I don't know what the position of the mayor is, and I don't know what the position of the city manager is, but it appears to be like, hey, www.shh.com. So, hey, it is what it is. What are you going to do? I mean, you know, I feel for Amari there, and I feel for those people, because I, what he was just doing oftentimes feels like what I do on my show, which is like I'm screaming about something that I think is just such an obvious injustice, and you just feel like you're screaming into the void. And, like, you're saying all these things, but then nothing's going to change, and those people who are getting screwed over are still going to get screwed over, and their power is still going to be shut off. And how, like, the extent to which the mayor and the city manager did not care about what they were putting people through I feel like that's the wall that we're up against many times. Even in the election with Bernie versus Biden, it's like, do you guys see who the older Democratic primary voters are picking? Do you guys see this? He could barely put together a sentence. He could barely put together a sentence. And this is who you're going with at a time when every single major thing Bernie's been talking about, he's been proven right during this outbreak. All the weaknesses are being exploited. The massive, um, you know, wealth and income inequality, the lack of universal health care, all of these things now, it, you know, we're showing how flimsy, how feeble our society is. Now everything's falling apart because of the pandemic. 
He's been proven right about everything, and you're going in the other direction. And it just seems like you're hitting a wall. No matter what you say, no matter how much sense you make, no matter how clear you are, you just hit a wall. And the reaction is like that mayor. Like, no, I don't care. You're done. What, is she, what was she saying to him? You're done. Something like that. You know? And then I think she even mentions, like, something about a state house position. And he's like, I don't care. I'm not... Who cares about that? I'm talking about what's happening to these people who just got their power shut off. So, you know, a lot of credit there to, um, to Amari taking a stand. Um, it didn't look to me like, he, like it was, like, planned. It seemed like he was genuinely pissed off. And um, shame on anybody who would shut off energy and, and screw people over during a pandemic. I mean, there's something extra evil about that. Okay, next. I want to take a look at how the UK government is responding to their outbreak, Um, because it's very different compared to how we are responding to ours. So the Independent says, UK government to pay 80% of wages for those not working during crisis. For the first time in our history, the government is going to step in and help pay people's wages. The government will pay up to 80% of wages for workers at risk of being laid off due to the coronavirus pandemic, the chancellor has announced. Um, Any employer in the country will be able to apply to HMRC for payments of up to £2,500 per worker per month, just above the median UK income, Rishi Sunak said Friday. Um, So... The idea here is instead of people being fired and the economy like imploding, it looks like people will be furloughed and kept on payroll instead of fired. Genius. So this is a move, again, to do effectively what I've been alluding to a few times on the show, which is like kind of like press pause on the economy. Keep the essential stuff working, the non-essential stuff not, but press pause on the economy. The government's going to step in and pay 80% of the wages for people who are likely to get fired. And, but they, weren't, they won't get fired now. It'll be furloughed. And it, it's genius. Again, here in the U.S., they're saying the Fed is predicting our unemployment rate could go anywhere from 20% to 30%. That's Great Depression-level unemployment. And the strings attached in the legislation that uh, Congress might pass and you know, might become law, there aren't strong worker protections. There aren't guarantees that people don't get fired. It's very, like... It's a slush fund for the corporations and crumbs for the workers and for regular people. So what they're doing is smart, and what they're doing, I think, is copying, what was it, the Netherlands who did a similar thing to this? They're paying 75% of the wages for workers in a similar situation. Um, but it, it's, it's intelligent. It is trying to actually weather the storm, whereas the U.S., there's a lot more like, you know, we're only going to do so much, and it's not going to be that much. That's the sense I'm getting from what the final bill will likely look like in the U.S. Um, the other thing, I want to show you this, because this is really something else. BBC says, hotel beds have been offered to rough sleepers in London, that's homeless people, to help protect them against coronavirus. About 300 rooms were made available this weekend to vulnerable people already known to homelessness charities as part of an initial trial. London Mayor 
Sadiq Khan's office is working with Intercontinental Hotels Group, IHG, to block, to block book rooms at a discounted rate for the next 12 weeks. It comes as Londoners and visitors stay away from central London. On Friday, Prime Minister Boris Johnson ordered restaurants, pubs, cafes, and leisure centers to close. Okay, so look at this. This one is really fascinating. No hotels are getting business because there's a freaking global pandemic. Nobody's going anywhere. Nobody's going on vacation. Nobody needs to stay in a hotel. Nobody's going. So in a situation like that, you could really kill two birds with one stone here by keeping the hotels in business, by making a deal with the government where they pay them X amount of money for an extended period of time, but also protecting homeless people and the broader population by housing them and putting them in said hotels. I mean, the fact that when we really need to do it to protect the rest of the population, we could immediately like, oh, let's um, end homelessness. That easy, huh? <laughs> Apparently, yes. So they're starting to do this. I think it's a brilliant idea. I think we should do the same here in the U.S. There's been some indications from uh, Gavin Newsom in California that they're going to like house the homeless. But from what I've seen since then, it's very similar to just like, hey, we're going to put these little cots like three feet apart from other cots and cram everybody in and you'll probably get coronavirus ripping through these temporary places for them to stay. Why not? Because hotels in the U.S. as well are not getting business. Why not do the same thing that they're doing in the U.K.? I think it makes a hell of a lot of sense. Um, And I think you kill two birds with one stone. You keep the hotel industry alive, alive. Maybe you don't necessarily need just a bailout like we're considering doing here, but you keep them alive and you make sure the homeless population is protected and by extension the rest of society is protected because you don't want homeless people spreading it to non-homeless people either on the street. You don't want homeless people to have it because you don't want anybody to have it, but you also don't want non-homeless people to get it from homeless people. So I think the way they're you know, approaching this problem is intelligent. I like some of these ideas and I wish we would go at least as far as they're going. Okay. All right, guys, final story of the day. And I think you know what it's going to be. Well, maybe not. I don't know. Who knows? So Joe Biden hasn't appeared in public in days, which is very weird because he's in all likelihood the Democratic nominee and we have a national crisis on our hands. So why? What's going on with him? Now, I pause because... As I'm talking to you right now, he just spoke. He just spoke. But he was out of the public spotlight for quite a while. Um, You know, people were wondering, what the hell's going on? Where is he? What is this? So let me tell you what his campaign was saying. Current Affairs reported on this. This is the excuse being provided for why Biden isn't being seen during a national emergency. A source with the knowledge of the campaign, said Biden's team is working on scaling up that infrastructure and dealing with the realities of Biden's Wilmington home. Like the fact that there aren't particularly high ceilings, which can make lighting a challenge. And then you also see there, uh, last year Biden filmed his personal space apology in his living room in Wilmington. So obviously they have the ability to do it. That's the point. Bernie has also done some things from his living room, and they just threw some freaking lamps on the floor. They didn't do professional lighting. They don't care because they're serious and they care about the actual issues and they want to fix it. They don't care about just the optics. So, I mean, that's literally the excuse they went with. They said, whoa, 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 now listen. And they said two days before, they were like, you know, we're trying to figure out how to get the word out to the people. 
the age of the internet. He had done like a Zoom call and he wandered off during it. And so the speculation was they're just afraid that he's like incapable of communicating for an extended period of time. Um, but the excuse was we're trying to we're trying to get him on camera, and but we got to figure out the best delivery method for it. I, are you kidding me? Skype, Google Hangout, YouTube live stream, Twitch. There's a million and one ways. Just post a freaking Twitter video for all we care. There's a million and one ways to do it. And they're like, I don't know, man. This is hard to figure out. The fact that they brought up the lighting, like, you know, we were going to talk to everybody about this national emergency, but we're having a real hard time figuring out the lighting in this living room. We need like four days to figure it out. What? What? So, um, he came out and he spoke like literally during my show, he was speaking and, um, it went exactly as you would expect. He's got like a really terrible green screen behind him. Very poorly done. And um, they think his teleprompter stopped working because he was making a motion like keep moving the thing so I could keep reading it. And he did a classic Biden. He was stumbling all over the place. He was making no sense. Um, It was hard to watch. So, you know, I think the reality of the situation is this. They're hiding him because it worked in the primary. And they think, hey, why wouldn't it work in the general? So even though I agree with the people who are criticizing and saying, listen, bro, you're now one of the de facto leaders of the Democratic Party. You can't hide during a national crisis. You've got to be out there front and center dealing with this. I agree with people who say that. But also, I think that his handlers, his staff, his campaign, I genuinely think they're being intelligent by hiding him as much as possible. I do. Why? Because of what we just saw before. He comes out and he speaks and it's a disaster and you give people a million things to laugh at for an extended period of time. So if I was running Joe Biden's campaign, I literally would do the same thing they did. I would just be like, um, yeah, don't worry, we're, we're on it. Or I would like, you know, have a staffer write an op-ed that gives a, you know, a five-point plan or whatever for dealing with the crisis, and I'd just release it as if it was Biden who wrote it. Because it works. Guys, see, that's the thing. It's funny, and, and you know, I'm a Bernie person, but it's funny when other Bernie people are like, where's Joe? Where's Joe? Where's Joe? Because it's like, you know where he is. He's hiding because he can't talk. So you know why they're doing it. And you know that if you were running the campaign, you'd probably tell him to hide too. Why wouldn't you? Again, that's exactly what I would do. So I think they're, you know, I think that's their best bet going forward is you have a market crash. You have a pandemic. You have Trump who's getting high favorabilities for how he's responding to it right now. But he had the perfect storm of things that are helping him where it's enough stuff where if Trump is still dealing with a horrendous outbreak and a crashing economy by the election, it's going to be hard for him to get reelected. You could run a ham sandwich against him at that time, and the ham sandwich could win. So Biden's, I always thought Biden's only chance of really winning is if something like a market crash happened or some crisis. And that's exactly what we're seeing. We're seeing both a pandemic and a market crash. So I think this is best-case scenario for Biden. And if I was his team, you look at what happened in the primary – And they did well in the primary by hiding him. So why the hell wouldn't you keep hiding him? That's what I think. So, but anyway, um, so sad. I will never forgive the older Democratic boomers who've effectively given us this dude. It's not over, over, but it's almost over. Um, But I'll never forgive the older boomer Democrats for, for doing this to us because... 
it's inexcusable. With the, the scale of the crises that we're facing right now, a pandemic, a collapsing healthcare system, income inequality, unemployment that's going to skyrocket to 20 or 30 percent, all these giant, giant, giant issues, climate change, all these. And you're going to give us the choice of Joe Biden or Donald Trump? Well, listen, then you can't be mad when people check out of the system. You can't be mad. Because to a lot of people, myself included, that choice is just unacceptable. (laughs) It's just unacceptable. I want to want to suck it up and vote for Biden. I can't bring myself to do it, man. I'm trying. I'm trying so hard. I want to want to vote for him. I do. Oh, my God, it's so damn hard. He has cognitive decline. On top of that, he's a diehard neoliberal corporatist. Oh, it's just the, literally the only thing is, like, the courts. <laughs> That's it, the courts. That's all there is, the courts. And even with the courts, you get a centrist. You don't get lefties. You get centrists as opposed to right-wingers. It's so hard. Oh, Oh, it's so bad. Oh, I hate everything. Anyway, um, so Joe came out and spoke, and he probably shouldn't have. Go back into hiding. That's your best chance in in the general election. Okay. All right, we're done, guys. I love you, baby. Everybody keep social distancing as much as possible and uh, stay healthy, stay safe. I love you. I'll talk to you soon. We probably got ourselves a little Kyle and Corin action that will drop on Wednesday morning but or maybe even Tuesday night. You never know. But anyway, uh, love you guys. Talk to you soon. I'm out. Peace.